Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 John, if you want to turn there with me. First John chapter 1. We have an exciting week ahead of us as a family. We encourage you, if you would, to be in prayer for us. Um, a couple of our kids get home this week, and our son arrived home from Israel yesterday. And he's not here today. He's back at college, but he will be here. Um, he'll be, be here tomorrow. And then um, our daughter will be here next Saturday. Uh, my in-laws are coming tomorrow. So you can pray for me. <laughs> and... Uh, Yes, I actually, I have great in-laws and looking forward to having them out, out here to be with us and visit with us. And, and then in a few weeks, we go and pick up our daughter back in Nebraska and we'll be a family again. Amen. So, yeah, we're definitely looking forward to that event. First uh, John chapter one, and the title of my message is The Root of Restoration. And it'll be a two-week sermon. We'll look at the first four verses in the first two weeks. We're actually going to address two verses this morning. And um, the bulletin is, I know the bulletin says four verses, but we're only going to look at two this morning. And then we'll look at the next, uh, the last two, verse three and four next week. But if you'll remember, we talked last week about the fact that in 1 John, um, the Lord through John, writes this letter um, very likely to a church. And the purpose of the letter is to restore the church's identity and in doing so, um, to restore their unity, their joy, and their eternal confidence in Christ. Uh, the church had lost some of those things because they had a group <clears throat> of Gnostic false teachers who have come in and infiltrated the church and, and divided it. And, and John writes at the end of chapter number one, he makes it very clear that um, not all people who claim to be followers of Christ are. And uh, this is a difficult thing to understand, to appreciate, but it's absolutely important if we're going to guard the church and guard ourselves from, from heresy, um, from false teaching. I remember um, we put our kids in a Christian school. They've been in a Christian school most of their life. But we've always had a, a, a policy with our kids, and that is we've always taught them that just because you go to a Christian school doesn't make you a Christian. And just because everybody around you is a part of the Christian school doesn't make them Christians either. And it's so interesting because kids get this mindset that, you know, uh, Susie over here, I, hope I, didn't, I, don't, I don't want to offend any Susies. I try to pick a name, but I know we probably have some in here. So if you're Susie, forgive me. But, um, you know, Susie over here, she's a part of the same Christian school that I'm a part of. And she gets to do these things, so I should be able to do them as well, right? And, and that's not always true, is it? That's not always the case. And so John makes it very clear at the end of chapter number one that not everyone who claims to be a believer um, is one. And, and we know according to Matthew chapter number seven and several other portions of scripture that it's not those who say something about themselves that's true, it's those who live it out, those who do the will of their father who is in heaven, these are the ones who evidence that they are Christians. And you think about Matthew 7 where the, 
um, the two different houses, one built on the sand and one built on, on the rock, right? Um, really, if you study that text out, you don't, there's no difference between the houses. Um, everything from the standpoint of how they look and how they, everything seems to be the same, but what really def, defines them is when the storm comes. And then that house that's built on the sand is very quickly revealed as being weak and unstable and, and really just a false foundation, right? And those who are built on the rock, when that storm comes, it proves that they are built on the rock. They're built on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and those are the ones that endure. It's, in, it's especially important to understand this, this teaching in John when you're dealing with teachers, um, the idea that there are teachers in our world today, and there were teachers back then, whose main purpose wasn't the edification or the instruction of the church, but their main purpose was to divide the church. Um, these were called wolves, and the scripture refers to them as wolves in sheep's clothing because they look like sheep, they might talk like sheep, they might seem like sheep, but they're really wolves seeking to destroy the church. And that's what John deals with here. In 1 Timothy 5.22, the Bible says, Be careful not to be hasty in laying hands on anyone. In other words, be, be careful when you affirm somebody as a teacher or a leader because they might be a sheep in wolf's, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. The Bible also says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, to make sure when calling a teacher or when following someone, you um, don't follow a novice or, or a young believer. That they be, they be solid in their faith because ultimately um, they're vulnerable like Satan. The scripture refers to as being vulnerable to being built up in their pride. Uh, being kind of self-exalted, getting in that position where people are following them, they feel really good, they feel really important, and they feel really significant, and they become proud of who they are, and they ultimately end up stumbling. And when they stumble, as you know, um, other people stumble with them, don't they? Most of us in here have experienced some form of disappointment by a leader that we thought was leading us in the right direction, and really, they weren't. And, uh, and this is what John writes about. He's writing to encourage these people. So remember this. All that being said, remember this. The book of 1 John is written not, to, not necessarily to help the people avoid this division and discouragement, but it's more written to help them deal with it. In other words, they've already experienced the discouragement. They've already experienced the division. Chapter number two says they went out from us because they were not of us. So they've already gone through this, this problem. And now what John is doing is he's writing this letter because God cares about his church, right? He's writing this letter to encourage the church, to strengthen the church, to teach the church on, number one, how to recover, how do, how do we recover from these disappointments or these discouragements or uh, problems that we all face in life? And we all face them. David understood this in Psalm 51 when he cries out to the Lord and he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And in other words, David's sin with Bathsheba had caused him to lose joy and caused him to lose confidence and, and his prayer was that the Lord would help 
restore him. One of the dangers in this recovery process, in this restoration process, is that we pursue fruits and forget about roots. In other words, when we go through difficulties, we often lose things. In the case with John, he writes about three things that they lost. They lost their joy, they lost their unity, and they lost their confidence in the Lord, or their confidence, their eternal security. Um, he writes in chapter 5, he says, These things that I've written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. So they lost three very important things. The danger for the people during this time is that they would pursue these things. Okay? Does that make sense? We are a people that pursue fruits, we pursue joy, we pursue unity. We pursue confidence, eternal security. We pursue these things, but in pursuing these things, we often miss the very things that we're pursuing. So the issue in John's writing here is the, the main issue is not joy, it's not unity, and it's not eternal security. The main issue in the book of John is that they had the wrong perception of who Jesus was. You see, the root problem wasn't these three fruits that we can, you know, and people pursue success and they, they see Jesus as a way to get money and wealth and, and they see Jesus as all these things and they're pursuing these things and they actually miss out on what really matters, which is Jesus. You see, when we have the right perception of who Jesus is, when we see him rightly, then we will have joy, right? When we see Jesus rightly, we will have unity. When we see Jesus rightly, we will have eternal security. For most of us, when we experience division, frustration, uh, insecurity, and those types of things, we think about the do's and not the who's. What can I do to fix this? And this is simply escalates the problem and causes it to be greater. Remember this, when we pursue fruits instead of roots, we often go about it the wrong way. Compromise, shallow love, insincere repentance, insincere forgiveness. Have you ever had somebody insincerely say I was sorry because they wanted what? They wanted unity. They wanted to be a friend with you again. So they said, you know what? The only way that I'm going to be a friend with this person again is if I say I'm sorry. So they say that they're sorry. They don't really mean that they're sorry, but they want to have that friendship. They want to have that unity. So they say that they're sorry and it's an insincere apology. And we do that because we're pursuing the wrong thing. What we don't realize is that true unity comes through Christ. That's why he says in verse number three that truly our fellowship, he's, he's like, let's have fellowship together, but he says, but truly our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. In other words, the basis for our fellowship with each other, the basis for our unity, the basis for our joy, the basis for our confidence in our eternal salvation is not what we do, but our basis is fellowshipping with Christ. It's finding harmony with him. 
It's finding union with him. It's finding peace with the Lord. Tolerance was the last one that we often use to create unity when we're pursuing fruit and not root. We can have unity. We can have real, true, solid, below the surface unity. We can have joy, not not happiness. Uh, We can have happiness too, but joy and happiness are different. We can have joy that's below the surface. That's not this, this, just this external thing, but it's this real deep heart-rooted thing that no matter what circumstance hits me in life, I'm okay. Because my heart is in the right. What we do is we work on these relationships and not this relationship. We're more worried about how Jason thinks about me than we are about how God thinks about me. We're more interested at being in harmony with each other than we are at being in harmony with God. So we pursue the wrong things and ultimately we get the wrong results. And all these things are tested by our storms in life, right? We can tell if our trials destroy our relationships that our relationships are probably not very strong to begin with. So how do we get the right relationships? In the book of 1 John, he goes right away. In the first, it's, one of the, it's one of really one of the oddest introductions to a book of the Bible. There's no introduction of who the writer is. There's no introduction of who it's writing to. There's no salutation. There's no welcome. There's really none of that stuff. He, he goes right to the root of the problem, and he goes to truth. He goes to doctrine. Probably not one thing that we think of when we want to have unity and peace is let's have more doctrine, right? (laughs) Right? Unity and peace comes from a lack of doctrine. No, it doesn't. That's a lie that the devil has convinced our culture because we see these massively growing churches and we think, oh my goodness, what are they doing? And they lack doctrine. Do you know something? Be careful because they may just be fleeting. They may just be fleeting. So the problem in 1 John is is not a lack of unity, joy, and confidence. The problem is a misunderstanding of who Jesus Christ is. So if the problem is misunderstanding who Christ is, the solution is understanding who Christ is. The solution is knowing Christ. The solution is building confidence in Christ, growing in our relationship and our walk with Christ. One thing that I want to make note of before we get into just three thoughts. Let's read our text. And I want to make just a comment, then we'll get right into our three thoughts this morning. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and declare it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
in this portion of scripture, and you can go, if you have time, go home this afternoon, look at the book of John, the first chapter. You, you, it's, almost, it's almost parallel. It's, the way that it's written, it, it's very harmonious, if you will. So there are three things in this text of scripture that, that they're, like, they're like three streams that want to run into one, okay? Number one in the text, we see the word of life, the word of God, um, God's word. So as we go through this, we understand that God's word is what's being referred to. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is also being referred to. We go back to John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. Amen. You can't read that verse without saying amen. What a, what a powerful verse. That's synonymous here with the word of God. And then the gospel as well, synonymous. When, when, we, when we come to this text, we see three things right off the bat. The word of God, the gospel, and Jesus Christ all, all in harmony together. Because they are all together. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. Right? The word of God is the word of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ obviously is Jesus Christ. Amen? So here's the issue. It's not how we solve the problem of lack of unity, lack of joy, lack of eternal security. The solution to this problem is a focus on the right thing. What John does is he takes their attention from over here and he moves their attention to over here. He says, you're, I, I like to think of Peter when Peter was walking on the water and he had his focus on Jesus, right? I mean, literally, he was just intently focused on Jesus and he, he was doing something that was supernatural, but he wasn't even focused on the supernatural thing he was doing, right? I mean, if I was in Peter's place, I might have tried to jump up and down and be like, whoa, look at me. But he's like focused, on the Lord. He's not worried about what's, what am I, what, whoa, what am I doing? He's not worried about the waves and the storms going on around him. He's not worried about anything except for Jesus. But the moment he starts focusing on maybe what he's doing or the storms around him, he starts to notice these things. He's like, boom, he begins to sink. Right? And the moment that he refocuses back on Jesus, he is restored. Jesus reaches down and helps him lifts him back up again. And we need that, don't we? We need that. It probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we need that every single day, don't we? Yes. We need that every single day of our lives to be lifted up. So what I want to do this morning for the next few minutes is I want to turn our attention from our problems, from our situations, our circumstances, perhaps people that have disappointed you in your life. I want to turn your attention away from them and turn your attention away, uh, turn your attention to Christ. It's who we focus on that changes our response to disappointment. Look at what the scripture says. The Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The first thing that we have to focus on is the power of Christ, the powerful Christ. 
In this text, he's referred to three times as being life. He's referred to, first of all, as being the word of life, which means the message of life. He's referred to, secondly, as being the life. Jesus says in John uh, 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, right? Jesus Christ is not just a way to the life, but Jesus Christ is the life. He is able, if you think about it, he is able to take our wretched souls, right? Okay, He who was dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he has made alive. Is there any greater miracle than that? I mean, I think about uh, a good illustration of it would be John 11, where Jesus goes and walks up to the grave, pulls the, the tomb away and says, Lazarus, come out, right? There's no greater miracle than that, right? So why is it that our circumstances and people and problems have more power over us when we know the Lord and we know what he's capable of doing, we've seen his power. We've watched him take lame hands and stretch them out. We've watched him make the blind see and the, the deaf hear. We've watched him take people who haven't walked for years and raise them up. We've watched him heal a, uh, a woman with an issue of blood for, for many years. We've, we've watched him do all of these things. So why is it that our circumstances and our problems are bigger than we are and it's because we aren't focused on what Christ is able to do. Listen, Christ can give life to a dead soul and Christ can give life to a dead situation. Christ can give life to dead people. I found this to be true. I don't know, I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like everywhere I go, I run into the same type of people. And there's always someone in the group where I go, where I minister, that has the ability of pushing all of my buttons. And I, yeah, you guys all have those people too in your life, don't you? But what's, what's amazing is that no matter where you go or what you do, guess who's there? Those same people. They're, it's almost like they just put on a different face and there they are. God's bigger, isn't he? God's bigger than, see, I can't focus on them. I have to focus on him. And he has power. He has power. He has power, not necessarily to remove them from my life, but he has power to teach me extraordinary lessons through them. Matter of fact, I will suggest, based upon the sovereignty of our Lord, that uh, they're in my life for a reason, amen? And they're in your life for a reason. And your circumstances are in your life for a reason. It's called sanctification. It's not easy, but it's necessary. A preacher once said that he realized why sanctification was so hard when he recognized how far he was from the goal. In other scriptures, the Lord is called the bread of life, John 6, 35. He's called the water of life in John 4. He's called the source of life in John 1. He's called the giver of life in John 5. He's called the sustainer of life in Colossians chapter number 1. There's nothing in life that's bigger than our God. And when we feel 
as low as we possibly can get, might we remember that our God is the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the source of life. He is the essence of life. John 10 and verse 10, the Bible says, the thief cometh not but forth to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I am come, Jesus speaking, that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. The scripture says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Listen, folks, whatever situation you're in, whatever circumstance you're in, no matter what you're going through, remember this. Jesus Christ is the life. Not just Jesus is the life, but where do we go to see Jesus? The word is life. And not just the word is life, but where else do we go? The gospel is life. A preacher once said, we don't just need the gospel the day that we're saved. We need the gospel every day. You know what this church needed? They needed the gospel. They needed to hear that Jesus is merciful, that Jesus is gracious, that Jesus takes our mistakes and forgives them. They needed to hear that. They needed to know that. They needed to treasure that. Yes, they had made a mistake. They had followed somebody who had divided the church, and, but Jesus was to be the focus of their life. The powerful Christ. Number two, the Bible says that which is from the beginning, the permanent Christ. Not only do we focus on the power of Christ, but we focus on the, the permanency of Christ, the fact that Christ is eternal. Not only is Christ eternal, but his word is eternal and his gospel is eternal. They have been here from the beginning. It has always been the gospel that has brought deliverance and salvation and it has never changed and it never will change no matter how many false teachers come on the scene and seek to manipulate and destroy and undermine the gospel of Christ or the word of God. It will never change. It will always be the same. It will always be quick and powerful and capable of fixing our problems and bringing us into a relationship with God. It will always be that way. All we need to do is stay close to it. Jesus says in John 15 to abide in it, to dwell in it. The word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is always the same. It never, ever changes and they never, ever change. And the issue that John writes about here is simply this. Hey, listen, there's gonna be movements right? There's going to be movements in our world. And there's a lot of movements today. And, and if you've lived long enough, you've seen movements come and you've seen the same movements do what? You've seen them go. Don't get caught up in these movements. Realize this. Jesus Christ is constant. He is everlasting. He is before the before time begin and he will be here after time ends. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. When all of these systems have passed away, Jesus will still be on the scene. 
And his word will still be faithful. His word will still be consistent. His word will still be true. And his gospel will still save people's lives. First Peter 1, 24 and 25, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that we have preached to you. Amen? That's amazing, isn't it? The word of God is eternal. Not only is it eternal, but the emphasis of this term doesn't just describe its eternality, but it describes the fact that it is unchanging. The word of God is unchanging. It is, it is everlasting. It is always the same. Jesus Christ is always the same. Malachi uh, 3 and verse 6 has kind of been one of my favorite verses in in the word of God, and it is this, I am the Lord, I change not. I change not. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of God, the gospel, and Jesus Christ never change. Doesn't matter what circumstance you're going through, doesn't matter what temptation you're facing, these will always be stable. We've got to keep our focus on these things. We often get discouraged because somebody fails us. Somebody, how many of you ever had a friend that forsook you? Anybody? I mean, maybe a few of us. Probably everybody here has had a friend forsake them at some point in time, right? The Lord will never forsake you. Why? Because he never changes. His view of you doesn't change. You are safe. You are secure in Christ Jesus. And you can be confident that that will never change. Not based upon the fact that you're a really good person and you're always that great friend, right? If I can just be the best friend that I can be, then my friends will never forsake you, me. It's not true, is it? I'll tell you this. The Lord will never forsake you, not because you're a good friend, but because he's a good friend. He'll never turn his back on you. He'll never walk away from you. He'll never hurt you. He will always do what is right, and he will always do what is good for us. He never changes. John wants these people to get their attention off of their problems that are always changing and back on Jesus. He is the solution. Number three. Listen, watch this. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, eternal life, which was with the Father and it has been manifested to us. The last thing is the proven Christ. The proven Christ. If you have any, John, John basically says this. If you have any doubt of the person of Jesus, that God was made man, God was made, became flesh, and dwelt among us. If you have any doubt about that, here's what John says I have talked to him, I have heard him, I have seen him, I have touched him. John gives a, a litany of reasons why you should never 
doubt Christ's humanity. And you take the gospel and the word of God and you can say the same thing. We have handled them with our hands. We have seen them with our eyes. We have heard of them. We have seen how they, how they perform. We've seen people take the word of God and open it up. And we've seen people's lives change dramatically. Haven't we? Jesus Christ has been proven. He is a worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. Matter of fact, he is the only one who is worthy. Turn with me back to the book of Hebrews chapter two. In your own time, I would encourage you to read chapter four as well, but chapter two is where I will focus on verse 14. The Bible says, since therefore the, verse 14, chapter two, Hebrews, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam. Therefore, he, he had to be made like the brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sins of the people. For because he himself hath suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. And chapter number four tells us the same thing, that we have a high priest who is not ignorant of our infirmities, but has been tested and tempted in every way, just like we are. And then he closes out with, yet without sin. In other words, he wins. He always wins. And Jesus Christ always wins. We need to know that he has proven 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he appears to 500 at one time and other of the disciples. John 14, 11 says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of my works themselves. We see the work of Christ all throughout his word. So what, is, what does the Lord do in those moments, in those situations where everything is lost, where friendships are lost, where circumstances are bad, and, and everything seems to kind of be falling apart, almost like a, a lost person's life? What does the Lord do? Immediately, he doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't, or uh, John doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't point to who he's talking to. He immediately takes them eyes, take your eyes off of your situation and put your eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Like the recipients of this letter, we all have experienced disappointments and discouragements of some kind in our life. Amen? Most of us have been disappointed by people. 
Some of us have been disappointed by people who have led us. Parents, teachers, political figures, spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, circumstances, financial, health, relationships. Some of us have been disappointed by God. Moses was disappointed by the load that he had to carry. Elijah was disappointed by Ahab and Jezebel continuing to pursue him. Jonah was discouraged by the children of Nineveh and how they responded to the gospel. The question this morning is not, will you experience disappointment in your life? It is how will you respond to the, dif- to the difficulty or to the disappointment that you do experience? Because every one of us is going to experience some type of difficulty. I will suggest this to you, and I'm going to close with a few verses. God allows or orchestrates the difficulties in your life for this very reason. He says, you know what? You focus too much on this world. So I'm going to make this world look really bad. So you'll start focusing on me again. Right? Can you imagine if the Lord would have just let Peter keep walking on the water? Could he have done that? He didn't. Peter needed to see Jesus. And you know what? We need a fresh focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. John 3, verse 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, will have eternal life. All you have to do is believe. You have to look, you have to trust. Depend upon Jesus Christ. Forsake self in repentance and trust in Christ. And then the last verse is in Psalm 73. I'm turning there. If you want to join me. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far, who are far from you shall perish, but put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. An old hymn that we used to sing was called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it went something to this effect. I believe the chorus was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you care enough for us and for this church and 
that you write about and for each individual that is here this morning to, to write your message to us in your word, to deliver it through, your, um, through the authors and Lord, to give us the truth and to guide us to know you and to have intimacy with you, which Lord God is the only way in which we will have true joy, true unity and true confidence. I pray your blessing upon your word this morning. I pray that it would not leave here empty or void, but it will produce the fruits that you wish for it to produce. And we give you the thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen.